You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Choose from a great selection of digital coupons and use them up to five times in one transaction. Check our app for details. Baker's, fresh for everyone. What is going on, Belly Up Sports fam? Mr. Shaka Cummings, Mr. Parker Ainsworth, welcome to FN Sports, the podcast with two teachers' great sports' biggest issues. Mr. Ainsworth, how are you doing on this fine Sunday afternoon, sir? I'm doing okay. It is hot, hot, hot here in Texas, but you know what? We're supposed to be inside anyway, so I'm staying inside with fans and AC on. How are you doing? <laughs> the high today was only supposed to be like 78 in Kentucky. Uh, it's a lot warmer than 78, so the meteorologist, once again, wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, but otherwise, <laughs> doing well. Um, let's go ahead. We'll jump in with our gold stars and detentions. I'm going to start with a gold star once again to the UFC, but specifically Jorge Masvidal. Jorge Masvidal <laughs> fights at 170 pounds. About 10 days ago, the UFC main event for UFC 251, it's on Fight Island. It's out in Abu Dhabi. One of the combatants, coronavirus. He's out. So on 10 days notice, the UFC needed to fill in for the main event. Someone needed to fight the 170-pound champ, Kamaru Usman, whose nickname is the Nigerian Nightmare, if that gives you any indication about how <laughs> tough that dude is. And Jorge Masvidal was like, bet, I'll fight him. And it was like talking smack. And then got in that fight and won the first round. Now, he lost the subsequent four rounds because the dude who he's fighting is just a massive wrestler, and he couldn't get away from that. But imagine if he had a full training camp. So, Jorge Masvidal, shout out to you for stepping up and saving the marquee event for the UFC. My goals target this week goes to Adrian Wojnarowski, uh, better known as just simply Woj at ESPN, because he's catching a lot of flack this week for doing something I think a lot of people just do, but because they're not Adrian <laughs> Wojnarowski, it doesn't get retweeted. So for those that don't know what I'm talking about, um, Adrian Wojnarowski got in trouble this weekend. He got a email, I'm going to go dive into the email in a second, but an email from a center in Missouri kind of arguing that the NBA's jersey slogans on the back of their jerseys should be saying some other issues, and that they're avoiding things, this and the other. Very classic whataboutism from the senator. And Wojnarowski responded with just simply, bleep you, sent from iPhone in an email um, and that got that got retweeted by the senator and sent out to like ESPN and put pressure on them and it, they made Woj apologize and then he got suspended or something or whatever right um, we don't know all of the details about 
how long it'll be without Woj. I can't believe the NBA bubble would start without him back, but also the Senators trying to steer away from the issues that the NBA, the league that Woj and Rossi covers, is trying to draw attention to. Like, like it was very, very human and very, very normal for him to respond like that. It's a shame that he's being held to a little bit different standard. But gold star to Woj and Rowski for, like, having a normal human reaction. Yeah, we all love the Woj F-bomb. That's what that's got to be called. <laughs> um, my, uh, my next gold star, I'm going to combine it with gold star and detention because it's really one story. The detention is going to go to Deshaun Jackson and his retweets from anti-Semitic speakers about issues that are related to black civil rights in this country. There's a confluence of issues that come together when you start talking about black civil rights and then you start looking at some of the folks who speak on behalf of those at times. Because some of those folks don't necessarily think about all of the different issues and how they tie together. And there are times where they will simply post hate about other ethnicities, other religious groups, other peoples. Deshaun Jackson didn't do his research, retweeted some stuff, and it was clearly from an anti-Semitic source. My gold star goes to NFL players who were willing to engage him and call him out because I got the sense that folks weren't willing to do that because maybe they were looking at Black Lives Matter and trying to conflate these things and trying to give Deshaun a pass. And the reality is hate doesn't get a pass. It doesn't matter where that hate comes from. So gold star to Julian Edelman, a Jewish NFL player who reached out to Deshaun, had conversations with him about anti-Semitism. Shout out to Chris Long as well. Uh, gold star to him for calling out Deshaun Jackson. Gold star to any NFL players who reached out to Deshaun and called him out. Did you hear Bomani Jones this week on his podcast? Uh, once you finish this podcast, you go listen to Bomani. He's very smart. But about just like his overall overarching criticism of Deshaun without having even read what the quotes were. I'm not surprised. Because let me say this, when Deshaun Jackson was trending on Twitter, I didn't know what the issue was. And I was like, I know he did something stupid. So <laughs> this is the dude that drops the football before he crosses the goal line multiple times. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> Bomani's quote was, anytime you have to start a paragraph with Hitler said, you should not be reposting that paragraph. <laughs> like, if the sentence is Hitler said this guy is blue. The sky is no longer blue. We're coming up with a new word for the color blue. <laughs> it's not It's not that simple. So uh, my first attention goes to Rajan Rondo for apparently having never been to a Motel 6. Or if, you have been to, if you have been to a Motel 6, it's certainly nicer than any one I've ever been to. Rajan Rondo posted a picture of his hotel room. And for those that don't know, the Lakers are staying at the top end of resorts within Disney because they that's like part of their home court advantage for it being the number one seed going in just responded in his i forget what snapchat or instagram story with motel six question mark with a picture of what looked like a very nice like large luxurious room with a king bed large tv full closet space so the hotels uh, that the nba players are staying in at disney are 90 percent of the population who stayed in the hotel, I'm willing to bet, hasn't stayed in a room that nice. Like, not kidding. I, I know what those uh, hotels look like. I'm a Disney freak. I've been to Disney World and Disneyland probably over 60 times in my life at this point. Those rooms are awesome. And then my second attention goes to Bleacher Report. Bleacher Report normally puts out a lot of good content, and it's hard to put out content that is not some sort of a list that is just like ranking players or teams or things or movies or whatever, right? Like we've all seen that happen in the, this, you know, void of sports. We've been making lists of things and they decided before the bubble starts back up that they're going to list their top hundred NBA players. This list is, and I'm going to stop talking about it very quickly because it's just made to like start conversation. And I think it's a bad list, but any list that has Chris Middleton in the top 10, multiple players without playoff wins in the top 10 or without playoff appearances, I'm sorry, in the top 10, and then you've also got Russell Westbrook, who was averaging, you know, in the month of February, right before he broke for this extended break, was going like 33, 9, and 9. Uh, anyway, he's not in the top 20. He was an all-star. You got Chris Middleton, who is number 10 overall on this list, who is like, really? Chris Middleton's like kind of the number two on that team, but like really that's just like Giannis and like whoever else they put in a jersey. And like you got... <laughs> 
just flaws in the list, even based on their own critiques and arguments. Like, again, my man Russell Westbrook gets slighted because he did not play very well for like a month and a half early on in the season. But ahead of him is Kyrie Irving, who's only played 20 games this season. <laughs> it's just silly. It's just dumb. It doesn't make any sense. Any list that has Kyrie Irving ahead of Russell Westbrook, like, it's trash. It's not even worth the paper that it's printed on. Like, I would rather flip that paper over so I could use it to take notes. Like, you got to be kidding. <laughs> Whatever, man. We are going to start with the $500 million question whether or not Patrick Mahomes' contract is actually going to be uh, budget-friendly down the road. We are going to talk about the Ivy Leagues and if the cancellation of fall sports signals a much larger message to the rest of collegiate athletics. And then we'll talk about Kelly Loeffler, the Atlanta Dream, and the WNBA and the controversies surrounding all of those entities. So without further ado, Mr. Ainsworth, are you ready to go, sir? Ready when you are, Shaka. Okay, Mr. Cummings, our first thesis for this week. As you said before, it's the $500 million question, which makes <laughs> it seem a little silly, but I'm interested in what you have to say. The thesis is the Kansas City Chiefs got Patrick Mahomes for a bargain. I mean, I'm going to be pretty high on it. I'm curious more about your grade than mine. I'm going to go ahead and say a B plus and just leave myself a little bit of wiggle room. What do you say, Mr. Ainsworth? <laughs> um, honestly, you know, people that know me know me. I'm very much against the idea of paying quarterbacks a whole lot of money, um, which is actually weirdly like why I'm going to give this an A, I think, which sounds crazy <laughs> when you look at the overall number of it being worth up to a potential $503 million. But I... I think the Chiefs got the better end of this bargain. Okay, Mr. Cummings, you gave this a, I think you said B+. Plus. You asked for a little bit of wiggle room, I guess, was the the thing that you were looking for somewhere in the high B range. Talk to me. Why did you want wiggle room on this thesis? Well, here's why I want to start, even before I start talking about this thesis, is that we literally did a whole podcast segment where you talked about quarterbacks and this whole pay structure. And so... The $500 million, like for me, I'm not surprised by it. Patrick Mahomes is young, and he's clearly the best guy going in the league and now has an MVP, Super Bowl MVP, and Super Bowl ring to back all of that up. He might have had a second one had his buddy not jumped off sides late in the Patriots game the year before. Um, A real legit argument that he could have too. So... With all of that being said, okay, you want to lock that guy up. Now, I know that the sticker shock of half a billion dollars is like, oh, my gosh. And I don't know how many times in history that the highest paid American sports athlete has been a football player, but I'm willing to guarantee it hasn't happened a ton. And now Patrick Mahomes is going to be that dude, even before the bonuses that can push the contract to $503 million. Because right now the contract is about four fifty which is a staggering number. God, I wish I played quarterback as well as he did. Um, <laughs> the the uh, guarantees are in the $140 million range. And like folks will look at that number with NFL contracts because they're like, they know that that's the amount of money he's guaranteed to get. Here's the thing, guys. Unless Patrick Mahomes like falls off the face of the earth, he's almost guaranteed to get somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 million out of this deal because most of it is tied to roster bonuses. And those roster bonuses come with the third day in the league year. As long as Patrick Mahomes is himself, like he's going to make those roster bonuses because he's going to be on the roster. So like he's he's going to make a decide, ton. He have to pull an Andrew Luck and decide to quit to not make them. Yeah, or he would have to pull an RG three and just start to suck out of nowhere. But and even with RG three, or whatever. Yeah, but even with RG three, that was injury related, which I'll get to in a second. You look at the other quarterbacks in the NFL. And you see that Russell Wilson is the highest paid dude at $35 million, And the average yearly amount for Mahomes is going to jump that by $10 million. And so you look at that and you might say, oh my gosh, that's a crazy number. But what you have to understand is this is the deal with quarterbacks. The, the contracts go up progressively. The salary cap goes up progressively. The salary cap has increased over the last several years in the neighborhood of $10 to $12 million a year. 
So as you start extrapolating this thing out, $45 million is going to be the number at some point for the best quarterbacks in the league. And I guarantee you that if Patrick Mahomes plays this contract through all the way, all 10 years, that he's going to get passed in terms of being the highest paid quarterback in the league. At some point, some quarterback's going to get more than the $45 million because that's the natural progression because all the dollars continue to increase. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen in the next four or five years. I mean, the guy who potentially could pass him is a guy like Deshaun Watson. I'm just not sure that that's going to be the case. I, I'm on the same page in a lot of fronts, and I'm even more firm on it. You know, I look at it being a bargain because the truth is, if you told me he signed a four-year deal where he was making, on average, $45 million a year, I wouldn't think that that was that crazy for a quarterback with an MVP trophy. He also, as we said earlier, has an argument at he got unlucky and won and won a second Super Bowl. In the second Super Bowl, he led tremendous comebacks seemingly single-handedly. I know he has a lot of weapons around him. The other thing that I think, though, that makes this a bargain is that not just that, you know, four years at $45 million a year wouldn't have been a crazy offer. Ten years, it's like it's like you said, the cap is going to go up, right? Football is not going to get devalued in the next ten years. The other thing that's worth talking about in this is that the NFL signs new TV contracts after the year at the end of the 2022 season. I don't know if you've noticed, lots of people watch NFL football on television. So much so that so much so that they're adding games to the week. Like, huh, how can we we'll take away Saturday we'll take the Saturdays as soon as college football. Wednesday night football. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like they're just trying to find ways to do it. TV revenue in 2022-23, even if there is a dip in the COVID revenue right now because of tickets and this, that, and the other, the new TV revenue in 2022 is going to shoot this cap right back up above where it currently is, even if it dips in the next year or two. I try to remind people that the part of the unprecedentedness of this unprecedented is that a word unprecedentedness <laughs> of this deal? unprecedented nature unprecedented nature yeah there's, there's yeah you're welcome so, I used to teach I'm English to be one of those people yeah uh, <laughs> um, only five deals in the NFL have ever been you know double digit contract lengths right you have Drew Bledsoe signed for ten years. He was traded a year later because a guy named Tom Brady took his place. <laughs> you had Brett Favre, who would play for two more teams before that 10-year contract was over. Donovan McNabb played, or signed for a 12-year contract and actually played uh, nine of them before he eventually uh, left the Eagles. Dante Culpepper signed a 10-year deal, did not finish it with Minnesota. And then Michael Vick, who was also young, which is interesting because he was just 24 when he signed his deal, but obviously two years into it was in some legal trouble and uh, they let him go. And, and so, you know, there's no real precedent for this in the sense of like, you can't assume he's going to get in trouble like Vic. Like no, no one else this young has ever gotten this length of a deal. 11 years ago, right? If you go back 11 years, Peyton Manning was the highest paid player in football at 21 million. He, he made 21 million that year, right? More than 16 players are making more than 21 million this year, right? Like that number has gone exponentially up. That top pay guy has gone exponentially up. And so 11 years from now, if you do the math and continue to like, there will be 16 or more players on contracts making more than the current $35 million. Um, it would not be crazy to see that number again double, to see that $35 million be closer to 70. That would be so, nuts. Oh my gosh. But. but is it really? Because 11 years ago, would you have said it was nuts when Peyton was getting $21 million to be like, yeah, but in 10 years, some guy's going to be making $35 million. Yeah, but what we probably mean? would have said it's nuts for a guy to get 45 And let's keep in mind that there's only one guy getting 45 It's only right. Mahomes, and Mahomes has got everyone beat by $10 million. So, like, But what I'm saying is that at his age and his position, his dominance he's already shown... I think that that 45 is not too much of a stretch, and I think in three years it will not even be a stretch. And then I, I guess my last point is that because of the way the extension is structured, the next three seasons he's making less money than guys like Ryan Tannehill. It's, it's well, really, well, he's making less money in terms of like his base salary because the base salary is so low, but that third year his – numbers are going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of like over 30 million dollars right like so to be like 31.4 i think if i'm doing the math correctly that's a big number 
Like, I mean, I get what you're saying that Tannehill and some of these other starting quarterbacks also have big numbers. And this is where I get into the B-plus piece, which is this is me going back to your argument that you made that I don't necessarily agree with. I think if you got the quarterback, it disproportionately impacts how good your team is. This team has a lot of young offensive talent that eventually they're going to have to pay. And so that's one of the considerations is that eventually you got to think about how you're going to structure the deals to make sure that you take care of those guys as well. Now, what I will say is that when you start looking at this deal, it's, it's a very smart construction of a contract because the, your dead cap money is only going to have an impact over the first five years of the deal. And so after that, there's not going to be any dead cap associated with this deal for Mahomes, which is incredible because the dead cap numbers, it's going to be like 64 million in this coming season, almost 65. And then it's going to be almost $60 million a year after that. And then $35 million a year after that. But then it starts to become a lot more manageable. The other piece with this deal, when you start breaking it down, the cap hits that Mahomes has, it doesn't top $43 million until 2026. And so even though his money is going to be huge, unprecedented, this contract isn't necessarily going to show that in terms of its value. So like where you were saying, Parker, that folks are going to be getting their money, I mean, $70 million in 10 years feels like a leap, but it's not a leap to think that some dude might be at $42 million in 2026, and that's going to be Mahomes' cap number. And so that's incredible in terms of the contract. Now, they do have some wonky cap numbers that can come after that. So when we start looking at you know NFL contracts, we start talking about, oh, what's it really worth? When are they going to look to try to cut them? Well, the restructure of the deal is probably going to come after the 2026 year because that next year he's got a $60 million cap hit, and there's two more – 50 plus million dollar cap hits to come after that so that might be where they start to look to restructure a little bit that was gonna be my last point is that the other reason this is a bargain for the chiefs is that if they get a few years in they're eligible to start restructuring it before it would really you know, infringe on their rights to or ability to create a good team around them so if they get to 2026 and like oh man you know that really was a two three year flash in the pan and now we realize that he needs all this speed around him they can restructure the contract starting about the time that that would be settled. It'll in. still have some dead cap impact if that were the case. Right. But that being said, you're locking up the guy who you think is the best. I mean, it's it's definitely a lot of positive. It's like he's playing basketball on turf because so much of it is his quick audibles, his breaking the pocket here, his doing this, that, and the other. And, and it is a lot of stuff on his shoulders that – I don't know that you necessarily get with other quarterbacks, even at 24, 25 years old. Here's my question I got for you, Shaka, as this deal stands. Is they've signed this guy for 10 years, and while I said earlier that the truth is most people, every football player, and most people that sign these long, long deals don't actually play them all out with the same team. Andy Reid is currently 62. Everyone said last time the coaching carousel came around, why is no one hiring Eric Bieniemy? Is there some behind-the-scenes job where Bienemy knows he is next in line for that Chiefs thing because they have 10 years with Mahomes, and so he can take over as soon as Reed wants to step down and run this thing? Because Bienemy runs that offense. Obviously, Andy Reed has run great offense his whole career, but Bienemy is the OC, and Reed is not a young person. Do you see some transition of power there being worked behind the scenes, if not somewhat more open soon? Because like, that, I think, is another important piece of this, right? Yeah, Andy Reid is one of the reasons why I'm giving this a B plus. So let's understand exactly how Kansas City works. Yes, Eric Bieniemy is the offensive coordinator. Andy Reid calls the plays. So if Andy Reid goes, the play caller goes. So eventually Reid's going to retire. I don't see Reid coaching through this contract. Although I will say this. When you get a Patrick Mahomes, all of a sudden you start to feel a little younger, right? <laughs> like, hey, I could do this for a little yeah. while longer. Um, and so I don't know when Reed's going to go, but that's going to be something that will have an impact. And while Biennemi is the offensive coordinator, he's the offensive coordinator in the offense that's designed by Reed and the plays are called by Reed. So I'm sure that Biennemi's got some ideas too that he might want to interject and start to switch some things up and 
do some things a little bit differently. And so, yes, it could be that they have something kind of work behind the scenes. I don't know that to be the case because the enemy interviewed for a ton of jobs. And th that's a whole nother story about how Eric B is not a head coach in the NFL. The enemy is a great offensive mind. He obviously is attached to the most electric player in football, or at least one of, because it's him or Lamar, right? Depending on who you want to vote for. There could be something there with the enemy. I'm not sure if there is, which is all of this is a part of the B plus. The other thing that I also want to leave a caveat for is injury because five years ago, if I had said to you, hey, Andrew Luck's going to retire, I think that people would have looked at me like I have six heads because he was so young and so dynamic. But injuries took their toll. Um, we saw injuries almost force Peyton Manning out of the game a little early too. So injury is the caveat that none of us can account for. I would say that, first of all, it is football. Any play can be catastrophic. I don't mean to say that, it, it, you know, that injuries are not a real concern. For any football player saying in any sort of form of long-term deal, it's what makes this so eye-opening is that you'd give a quarterback or a football player in general that much money in that many years. But I will say he has played with better offensive line play than Luck ever played with, at this, certainly for the first eight years of his career. Um, again, that we're talking about 2026 or so when they're looking at potentially restructuring this because both sides may want to restructure it at that point. He'll be roughly the same age Luck retired at at that point, right? Like, he's he's so, so young, and I cannot stress that enough. Like, he, he's so young when this deal is over, he's going to be the current age of Aaron Rodgers. Like, like he's really, he's really, like, he's going to Yeah, he'll be 30 years deal. old in 2026, so he's a young guy. Right. Okay, Parker, so the thesis statement for this commercial is James Harden has the best beard in sports. What do you think about that thesis statement? Oh, I give it an A. You know, as a Houston guy, we we seem to have an affinity for our beers between guys like him, Dallas Keiko, lots of big beards in the Houston area. Uh, what do what do you think about the thesis? So I'm a Jets fan, and I absolutely love the beard that Ryan Fitzpatrick has. So maybe I would give Ryan Fitzpatrick the nod over James Harden, but. You're talking to a couple of bearded teachers, and we know a thing or two about making sure that you maintain that mane. So uh, check out the beard struggle. The beard struggle, they make oils, they make balms, they even have this heated comb thing to make sure that you get your beard straight so that you're looking fresh. I know I've really enjoyed using the oil they make for my quarantine beard of sorts. It's nice and long these days, but it <laughs> keep it nice and healthy and hydrated. And if you're a listener to our show, you can use... FN Sports 15 and get 15% off your oils, your bombs, your uh, shampoos, conditioners, whatever you need to use to keep your beard looking healthy. Absolutely. Check out The Beard Struggle at thebeardstruggle.com. Whether you're just starting to grow or you have a luscious mane already, The Beard Struggle's got all the products that you need. The Beard Struggle. Feast your face. Okay, Mr. Ainsworth, on to our next thesis statement the ivy league postponing fall sports is a precursor for the rest of the ncaa i throw that at you mr ainsworth how are you going to grade that uh for me that gets like an a minus uh i'm going back to like you just wanted the wiggle room in the last thesis i want a little bit of wiggle room but i do think it is ominous um i'm gonna give myself a little bit of wiggle room as well but i'm gonna go in the b range i'm probably just gonna go with a straight b Okay, Mr. Ainsworth, thesis statement, the Ivy League postponing fall sports is a precursor for the rest of the NCAA. And you gave that an A- minus to give yourself a little wiggle room, but you're still in that A range. So my wiggle room is just dollars and cents, so maybe I should have left myself more wiggle room for more dollars and cents. But I, what I really, <laughs> the Ivy League is intriguing because it is Division One athletics in most senses of the word. I mean, you've got guys like Marcellus Wiley from Columbia played in the NFL for a long time or Jeremy Lin from Harvard went to the NBA right Lin Sanity uh, it does produce good athletes it is high level competition it is strong competition but each of the schools are obviously academically focused and they don't have these high dollar TV deals they're also because they're old and been around forever and tout education and so on considered the best some of the best schools in the country for lots of reasons right um, I think it's interesting that the NESCAC, the New England Small College Athletic Conference, is a Division Three conference in the same region of the world, right? Sometimes they'll call themselves the Mini Ivies. Mm -hmm. um, smart kids there, too. Yeah, smart kids there, too. There are lots of smart schools outside of both of these conferences, for what it's worth. But both the Ivies and this conference that likens themselves to, quote, the Mini Ivies, 
is also canceling their fall sports. You're seeing other Division three schools cancel their sports as well because they're obviously also not tied to these TV deals. Where I tend to lean on this is when you take out the TV money, right, that's going to give you a lot of room to be more morally correct, right? You're not, no, you're no longer tied to these binding contracts with billions and, or if not hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And if you're starting to see everyone not tied to money canceling their fall seasons, or at least, you know, postponing them at the best or whatever, I think that means the decision should very obviously be look, if money were not involved, this is really amateurism, we wouldn't be doing this, right? Like if, if the Ivies can sit here and say that, look, we don't have those TV deals and so we ain't doing that. And they can sit, say, we'll put you the spring at best, we'll talk to you guys in January, no one's coming to our campuses until January. Perhaps that's really what we all ought to be doing, right? Like they don't have the ties to ESPN, ABC, Disney Corporation, or to NBC, CBS, that the, C, that the SEC has or whatever. And so they don't have any of that in the way of their decision-making. And so since they don't have that in the way of their decision-making, they're very clearly saying, we'll talk to you in January, stay home, stay safe. And if the only reason that other schools are having that decision is the money, I wonder if that means that the decision is going to start to look more and more obvious that like one of these is more correct than the others. I also think it's worth pointing out that Ohio State, or not Ohio State, Ohio State's being the biggest moneymaker, but the Big Ten <laughs> is going to just conference play, which gives them kind of another month at the start of the year where they get to kind of wait and see what other people are doing. But what that really appears to me to do is to say they have a month where they can keep their kids on campus and try and control and bubble their campus and see what other places are doing. Like if all of the Big Ten schools are bubbled and then like the AAC or whatever decides they're going to play a regular schedule and then that goes horribly they can kind of work out those kinks ahead of time before they have to worry about traveling to play games. The case for not playing this fall is very health-related, very logistics-related, and makes a lot of sense. But it doesn't make dollars. And the, <laughs> the issue that these big schools are facing is they have lots of dollars on the line with these TV deals, right? And so they're having to have different conversations. And so... While the Ivy League is maybe showing what ought to be done in some ways by pushing to the spring and let's revisit this in a while and let's just lay low for a minute, I just, I can sit here and morally say, to me, that means these other schools ought to be doing that as well. But I can also rationally say the dollars don't add up if they do that. They're going to try and push this down our throats somehow. Well, there's several pieces that come along with the Ivy Leagues as well, right? Which, number one, the Ivy Leagues, those schools... I think Columbia has already announced, Harvard's already announced, they're not going to have students on campus in the fall. So if they've already made that announcement, I don't know how you can have a policy where students aren't allowed to be on campus and athletes are. So once you've already made that decision, well, then it's fairly simple to go ahead and make the next call, which is we're just going to postpone our athletics. So if you have some Ivy League schools that have done that, it feels different than what's happening at major state institutions, right? Harvard and Yale and their private schools as private entities, they can essentially operate how they'd like. Ohio state is a huge state school, which means that the state government is going to have some level of involvement in terms of whether or not students are on campus versus, you know, doing everything hundred percent remotely. The same thing at any major state school, right? So you want to throw out the university of Florida, Florida state, the university of Kentucky, Georgia, whatever, right? So the question there is how much influence does the state government and state decisions have in terms of students on campus? Because I think once you make the decision about students on campus, the rest of it, I think it almost becomes academic. The TV deals, obviously, you can't discount. And it's not that the Ivy League doesn't have TV money that comes in because the Ivy League actually has television deals. It's nowhere near the stratosphere of what the SEC is making or the Pac-12 and that sort of thing, right? Uh, that being said... They also have these huge endowments to buffer a time period where athletics aren't going on. And even these huge state institutions don't touch Harvard and Yale's endowment, right? I mean, you'd be a oh, huge state school. It. You're still not far there. So it's easy enough when you have that level of money to say, well, we can make this decision. And then you look at these other schools Wake Forest is not in the same boat, even though they're a private school. And if they don't 
get that money in the fall, how does it end up impacting their winter and spring athletics and what programs they could even offer, let alone whether or not they're going to have athletics, right? So you still have the moral piece, which is if money's not an issue, what's your decision? Then it feels like you should just make that decision. And what I think that schools don't kind of report on, but I think is an issue, I do think that a lot of that athletic money goes into these academic programs as well. And schools just don't talk about it because they tend to relate the athletics to the athletics. But there's a potential that in terms of the money that comes in, it might have academic programmatic impact. It's definitely as a form of fundraiser, it's going to have impact in terms of your advancement and raising money. All of those are things that these guys have to consider. And what I come back to is that this is not the first time that the Ivy League was on the forefront of canceling and then people followed. Right. Because if you remember back to basketball, the first conference to cancel their conference tournament was the Ivy League. They canceled their conference tournament back in March. And folks looked at that and they said, man, are they overreacting? And then a week later, everything was canceled. They canceled their tournament and said they were not going to send any team to the NCAA tournament. And they're like, what? What do you mean? And then like a week later, there was no NCAA tournament. It was resolved. I mean, we thought that there were folks who thought that they were overreacting. And it was proven that they weren't overreacting. They were just on the forefront. And so that's what worries me is that it could just be they're on the forefront again, right? And that these other schools just haven't gotten to the point where the Ivy League already is. I mean, we saw looking at Maryland, Clemson, Ohio State. These are places that have had coronavirus outbreaks. Some of these programs have shut it down already. Maryland's already shut down their voluntary stuff. They're done. So now when we start to see that these football bubbles aren't working, that actually gives data to all the academians to say, why are we bringing kids back then? We can't control 150 football players. We're Florida State. We got 20,000 kids. So now if we can't control 150, we're going to bring back, what, 19,850 more? And... When I look at that, I, I just think that the folks who are in charge of education are going to get to the point where they potentially say, hey, we're done. They may start asking some questions about what can they do in terms of how far back can we postpone this thing? Can we start it in October? Will we have well, a vaccine so or something by then? I, I, don't know. I don't know if we'll have one by October. That seems well, bad, we definitely but won't. Say... But, I mean, they might start. You know what I mean? You, right. It's like a kid I, trying to convince yourself of something. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think the interesting thing will be, too, is the Big 12, like I said, is very Texas-centric. The Ivy League schools are fairly close together. But when you get to the SEC and the Pac-12, and I want to talk about the Pac-12 for a second because of how much space the Pac-12 covers. If you just look at the pairings and the rivalries, across the Pac-12, you have the old Pac-10, which was Arizona, Arizona State. Then in Southern California, you had USC, UCLA. You had Stanford, Cal. You had or, uh, Oregon, Oregon State, and then you had Washington, Washington State. And those 10 schools originally are super spread out from one another. And then, a couple, you know, it's been 10 years ago now, they added in Colorado and Utah. Just a conference schedule requires lots of distant travel, requires lots of different states being in somewhat of the same state of mind about where the virus is when it happens, right? Because if... Oregon is in a very different place in Southern California. Are the Oregon kids going to want to come down to LA and play or vice versa? Right? Like it's a, it's a much, it's a big wide scale conference across like a half the United States. All the conferences essentially have this question to answer, right? Because if you're the big tents made the decision because they're not sending kids from Nebraska to go play in Jersey. Right. And that's Nebraska and Rutgers. Those are big 10 schools, right? It's the same thing in the SEC. You're going to send kids from Texas to go play in South Carolina because A&M plays South Carolina, right? Like that's that's the reality of it. If you're talking about the Big 12, right, you're going to send kids from Oklahoma to West Virginia. I mean, these, these conferences span not only vast amounts of the United States, they also span states that are having very different protocols in terms of how they're even exactly. responding to the virus, right? What's happening in the Northeast and in Jersey is that because things were shut down and things, they didn't open stuff, the Jersey numbers actually look a lot more manageable. 
Okay, Nebraska as a state never shut down. <laughs> Nebraska, right. they they schools were going and all sorts of stuff. It's not that Nebraska is out of control, but I mean, you have two diff- very different entities that are in the same conference. Okay, Texas, right versus any place else, <laughs> right? <laughs> any- and, be- Any place else because like the Texas bi- and Florida are doing the worst with this. <laughs> well, right I mean, now. the big what I say when I say that's because Texas has a couple of different conferences, right? A couple of the big ones because it's not only the Big Twelve; it's also the SEC. So Texas well, versus anyone now you have multiple one, impact. One SEC school, right? Uh, yeah, but that one SEC school still got to play their schedule. That one SEC school, right. when it plays a football schedule, goes to four other states to well, go play their games. Be, it'd be interesting, and because it would be interesting for like the conferences to be like you know. Screw the lines where you're playing your state this year, but they can't do that because it messes their money up too. Because then, where do you put the A&M home game on? T- if A&M were to only play the rest of the state of Texas, you get the rivalry back, yeah. But where, what TV deal does that fall under? Even for a one-year temporary thing, like you couldn't just do, well, stay home and play because that's competing television deals between the schools. And let me say this. They might even be able to figure that out if they really wanted to. I don't think that they would because it's a money thing. And so I don't think that folks are going to be as giving. That being said, is that still the right thing to do? If Texas A&M was included in Texas and you did this whole Texas thing and Rice decided, hey, we're not having kids at school. Rice is a private school. They're not dealing with Governor Abbott. So if they decide they're not going to have kids man, are we just going to say that it's okay for these guys to come to campus and play these? Like the, the moral questions versus the dollar and cents questions and how they start to get intertwined is the only room for wiggle here. You're about to have each school make that decision. Taking football out for a second, I, if you just didn't have that question looming, I think because so many schools sent kids home in the spring and numbers are not a whole lot different than some of these schools than they were in the spring, I wonder if football were not an issue if they would just say, nope, don't come to campus anyway just because of looking at the numbers in April when they said stay home versus now. I will say that I don't know and I would love to see someone try and justify any school, public, private, wherever, having kids not come to campus but still participate in after school activities or you know extracurricular like the football team. Like even though they are scholarship athletes, referring to these as extracurricular activities is the only way I can think about it because they're not paid you can't be an essential employee and coming to campus to play if you're not an employee at all well there is no way as long as again they're not considered employees you can't make players do anything so if all of a sudden Clemson's like yeah we're gonna have a season but Trevor Lawrence is like I'm not coming there's nothing you can really do about that Trevor Lawrence just doesn't show up and you just would have to manage now I I don't know how individual players would kind of react and some of those situations. It would be interesting, though, to see a few guys who are high profile to just say, we're not going to play. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Now I'm starting to think about like the University of Kentucky and the some of the guys that we have. Like our whole football existence depends on like Terry Wilson's health. So, um, but yeah, I mean, all of these individual players then have to make those individual decisions. I don't think that there's any way a school would say we're not going to have students on campus and then say we're going to have football because the look is just too bad. All right, Mr. Cummings, our third and final thesis this week is that Adam Silver needs to step in and remove Kelly Leffler as a partial owner of the Atlanta Dream. How do you grade that one? I have a lot of thoughts in this particular story. I'm going to give that a C because of the Adam Silver piece in particular. I wonder if our thoughts on Adam Silver are going to be the same here in a second. I'm going to give it a B. Um but I think we're going to have something similar to say about Adam Silver in a second. Okay, Mr. Cummings, you gave this thesis on Kelly Leffler a C. Um, I'm assuming because whenever you give a C, you tend to think there are some A things and some F things, and so you would tend to settle in the middle. Oh, you know me so well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So tell us what those things are. Let's start with a little background first to make sure that folks understand this story. So uh, Kelly Leffler... She is a congressperson from Georgia. She is a part of the Atlanta Dreams ownership group, so the WNBA franchise. And she's a part of the first all-female ownership group in the WNBA, in the country. So, like, props for jumping in and in the WNBA having an all-female ownership group because that was an amazing story when it came out. So, Ms. Leffler is a 
Republican congressperson, she will tell you that she is incredibly conservative in terms of her political leanings. With the current climate in our country, the murder of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police, we've seen the response in terms of protest. We've seen the national climate change as we talk about civil rights uh, for black people in this country. And the WNBA, who has always been a politically very active sports organization, they had players taking knees back in 2016. They've had the ideas for jerseys that discuss political issues. They've been doing this for a long time. This is a part of the DNA of the WNBA. The WNBA, they're going to return to a bubble scenario that's going to take place in Bradenton, Florida at the IMG uh, campus. And when they return, they're going in on the Black Lives Matter messaging. So that includes the court. That includes player jerseys. This is a stand that the WNBA has announced that they're going to take. And players overwhelmingly were for this move. And then Ms. Leffler, as the owner of the Atlanta Dream, has come out and denounced the Black Lives Matter political movement. She talks about the fact that the things that they claim to want to stand for aren't the things they actually stand for. She actually introduced legislation to have Antifa qualify as a domestic terrorist organization. So for her, she looks at the WNBA going all in in terms of Black Lives Matter. And she's like, yeah, that's not the direction that we need to go. And her thought was, instead of putting Black Lives Matter on the court, we should be putting American flags on the court. Players have come out and they've spoken against Kelly Leffler. They are incredibly critical. And even Renee Montgomery, who's not going to play in the bubble scenario, but she is a player on the Atlanta Dream. She came out and basically dissed her owner and said, this is why I'm not playing. Because there's more work to do, and I can't worry about playing basketball in that bubble. I mean, my owner is one of the reasons why I can't play right now. There's players literally across the league who come out and denounced Ms. Leffler. So that's kind of the background. And so the question becomes, with the increased awareness around this issue, should someone like Adam Silver jump in with the WNBA and make a decision about Ms. Leffler? So now, Mr. Ainsworth, now that I've given that background, I'm curious (laughs) about your thoughts. My thoughts on this are when Adam Silver wasn't, you know, shortly after he became in charge of the NBA, the, the official NBA commissioner, he ran into a owner spouting some racist things on recorded things in his private time named Donald Sterling. And he very quickly <laughs> and swiftly, and frankly, you could argue as like the only real difficult decision that he made quickly and swiftly in his career thus far, Silver was like, all right. Well, then he's a done, and he's going to sell his team, and you're no longer allowed to be at NBA stadiums, and you're no longer be associate, allowed to be associated with the NBA, um, and was very, very quick and swift on that, and has frankly bought himself a lot of you know leash or leeway or whatever you want to say since, because I would argue actually since then he's been slow to do things and let the players kind of like beat him to the punch a lot of the time, but he was quick and right in uh, April of 2014. And so I guess my thought would be that while her remarks may not be as explicit as things that Donald Sterling said. There are certainly implicit biases and things and things that she's saying that are in the same vein. And if we've drawn this line that this is not going to be tolerated by the National Basketball Association, to me that includes the the Women's National Basketball Association, right? Because that's just another piece of the puzzle here. I could come at this, and the reason I gave it a B and not an A, and that, you know, the WNBA is its own league in many respects you could find some other ways for the WNBA to handle it themselves because they are a functioning league that while it is parented by the nba it's not like they necessarily have to have the overlap of adam silver you could probably find other names of people to do it but i i just feel like that the president was kind of set political leanings aside that this racism was not going to be tolerated and i don't think that the implicit versus the explicit should negate how we treat it. I'm not here to disagree with a lot of what you said in terms of why we should look at uh, Ms. Leffler and decide that maybe, maybe she doesn't need to be an owner in the WNBA. What I will say is as an owner, she's put the money up, right? So that I imagine there's contractual pieces that you have to look at if you're going to start removing owners. And 
if we are to parse everything that she said, she's essentially saying that she disagrees with the direction that the WNBA is moving with this bubble scenario. Is that is that okay? I'm, I imagine that other owners are. She's probably the one that's being the most vocal. However, she's also running in a re-election campaign in November, so she needs to be vocal on certain issues, right? She's got a constituency that she has to please. Now, I'm not saying that I agree with that mindset. I just understand where this potentially could be coming from, right? And so then the question really is, as an organization, as a league, is the WNBA going to say that owners have to be all in with everything that we do from a political standpoint, or, or you can't be an owner? Now, that to me would give me pause. I don't want to go down the slippery slope of you have to agree with everything that the WNB is doing from a political side in order to be an owner. I think that that's a tough deal. And this potentially could be setting some sort of precedent in that way. The other piece that I get to that makes me say C is the WNBA has a commissioner. Kathy Engelbert is the commissioner. So why does Adam Silver have to come in? Like, that feels like a very patriarchal, chauvinistic system that I'm not cool with. Like, Kathy Engelbert, she gets to make that call. Now, if she wants to reach out to Adam Silver in order to get some consultation, because Adam Silver dealt with the Donald Sterling situation, she's more than welcome to do that. And I would be stunned if she hasn't. That she being said, the WNBA she's commissioner is the one who needs to jump in and make this call based on the organizational structure. So Silver worked with a handful of people behind the scenes when he had to do this deal with Donald Sterling, but again, he did it very quickly. Engelbert has only been the commissioner for a little over 12 months. Like she was appointed and got the office in May of 2019. So I, I don't think that it's unreasonable for her to be like, hey, how'd you go about this? Just to another commissioner who has literally done it, you know, um, that she frankly works fairly closely with already. Um, but I, I agree, I think that like, the bigger issue with the thesis is does Silver, to me, is does Silver need to be the one stepping in or, you know, does it need to be Engelbert? Does it need to be her selling her shares and backing out her own? Like those kinds of pieces, I think, to me, are the more argumentative pieces of the thesis than just the idea that it needs to happen, right? Yeah, I mean, and Leffler has already said that she's not backing out on her own. And if we're talking about one of the other two being possible, then to me, Adam Silver jumping in, like, that's not a viable solution either, because what that does is it then sets up Kathy Engelbert as the commissioner to have her power undercut. And if she's the commissioner, she doesn't need Adam Silver coming in and undercutting her power. She has power. This is her organization. This is her league. She's the commissioner. She reports to these owners, right? And so, to me, that negates that option of Adam Silver jumping in. That, that, so, to me, that's the F part of this. Now, I, I do think that it's reasonable for the commissioner to come in and say, hey, listen, as a league, this is in our DNA. This is who we are. We take these political stances. We take these stances that are on the side of marginalized peoples and their rights. We've always done this. So when you bought in, this is what you bought into. So you can't come and try to run counter to who we've always been. You don't get to do ownership a la carte. You don't get to say, oh, I will do you know, some of the home games at Atlanta, but um, I'm going to pass on the discussion about white privilege. No, because the WNBA has it all. This is, we do all this. So as long as you know who we are, you bought in to who we are. And if you buy into who we are, we didn't change. All of a sudden, your understanding of who we are, I guess maybe has in some way, shape or form evolved, but that's on you. You're with us. Or you're not. This is, I mean, in how many different leagues have we had the guys like an Al Davis or a Jerry Jones? You know, these guys who speak out. Mark Cuban does it all the time. These guys who speak out against what the league is doing. And then the league comes down on them. The league will look at them and say, hey, what's going on here? You'll get fined and that sort of thing. Okay, this is what we're doing as a league. Now, you want to step outside of that and say that you don't want to be a part of this. You knew who we were. Is there some sort of repercussion, whether it's a fine situation? I don't know. And if the call is going to be made that Leffler doesn't need to be an owner, then Kathy Engelberg has to be the one to make it. Now, the WNBA already released a statement where essentially they say that, you know, Leffler hasn't really acted as a governor in terms of, you know, being in charge of day-to-day -day operations since 2019. So they're not too worried about her. This is who we are and this is what we're doing. That being said, the players seem to be worried about her. And if all your players are saying something needs to be done, it feels like this is a conversation you're going to have to have whether you want to or not. 
I agree. And the deal is, it's like you're saying, Leffler bought into this league a decade ago. Like this is this league has been at the forefront of social issues for that entire decade and before. It's not like this is like she's been you know in charge of this team for 24 years and she's finally putting her foot down because she's watched it grow and grow. Like she knew what it was when she came in. She's watched it change for the last. She was here in 2016 when players were taking knees during the national anthem. Like, come on, man. Um, If anything, if I'm being frank, this seems like someone who's a politician in an election year, and you know she wants to make sure that she doesn't get tied back to her because that's not who her base is. But I think that that's part of my biggest problem with this is that the idea that you know Black Lives Matter is as an institution is at all a political one is is what we need to be fighting against here in general right the the idea that this civil rights action is a you know like one side or the other issue like like it should be a civil it should be a civil rights issue right and so it shouldn't be like well as a this politician she can't be with that like it's about the rights of people that she literally has as employees in the you know not just in her other business ventures but in the league you know, the NBA does have its ties with the WNBA and keeps it, you know, financial, this, that, and the other back and forth. I would assume because she's such a new person to the job, Engelbert would go back and talk with Silver. I also would point out that, like, Silver's deal with Donald Sterling in 2014, like, he had not been a commissioner very long, but he had been David Stern's right-hand man for a long time, like a long, long time. And so he knew how a lot of things worked. I don't know enough personally about what Engelbert's connections were to WNB offices before. No, I mean she I was the, she was a CEO at Deloitte, like right. so her background so, isn't necessarily being involved with the NBA. Right, and I'm not I'm not saying that you know hiring and firing based on problematic racial feelings at Deloitte doesn't wouldn't have happened either. I mean I'm sure at Deloitte she'd have made morally right choices too. I just mean that she didn't have the same kind of experience, and so I would understand if she was like, hey Adam, I need a little nudge here, or hey, hey, what do I do here? Um, that all said, I, I don't think that it's outside of the WNBA or NBA or any other sports league's uh, jurisdiction to be like, look, listen, you don't get to be anti the people that are in our league. Like, the, you can, you know, respectfully do your thing and be a politician outside of this league, but as far as your ownership within this league, it's like you're saying, there's no piecemealing what you do and don't like or coming in here to change who we are. Like, the league is the league, and you're buying into it, and you're a part of it, or you're not. It's so interesting because she's like saying that she doesn't want politics mixed with sports and she's so overtly mixing her politics with sports. Friends, that is another edition of FN Sports. I only wish that you guys could have been a part of the arguments that Parker and I had off pod about things that had nothing to do with what we talked about during the podcast. (laughs) This is why you should interact with us on Twitter so we can yell at you. Parker, give them your social so you can tell them where you're going to yell at them. If you have any questions about things that have nothing to do with three theses we talked about today on the pod and you want to argue with Shock <laughs> and I some more, you can find me at Painsworth512 on Twitter and Instagram. That's at P-A-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H 512 on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can find me also on the show's Twitter. Uh, Shock and I both respond to that fairly frequently. You can see me do a little dash P-A or Shock and do a dash C-C to know who you're interacting with. But that Twitter is at FN Sports 2, the number 2, so F-I-N-S-P-O-R-T-S, the number 2, all one word, on Twitter. Shaka, we also have an Instagram. Absolutely. You can check us on Instagram at F underscore N underscore sports. And you can get to me personally at Shaka Cummings at C-H-A-K-A-C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S on Twitter or on Instagram. Thank you guys for another wonderful week like subscribe share do all those things that help the podcast and please remember when it comes to sports don't flunk with us later guys Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. 
And we're Team Ready. Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is, so they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready.